Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Wiley Society podcast. I'm your host, Anna Ehler, and today we're going to continue an ongoing conversation about the way that science is communicated. Wiley recently released an in-depth report titled To Know the World, Transforming Science Communication and Literacy to Improve Research Impact. And in that report, we investigated some of the main ways that people form opinions about research in science. How is science taught in schools? How are scientists portrayed in the media? Even the formats that we use to communicate research can have an effect on their meaning and relevance to wider audiences. It's a fascinating read, and we'll include a link to download the full report in the show notes. At the 2017 Wiley Society Executive Seminar in Washington, D.C., Dr. Rush Holt, the CEO of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or AAAS, shared his perspective as the leader of the world's largest general scientific society on why science no longer holds the position it used to hold in our culture, basically as a widely accepted social good, something that everyone, not just scientists, could understand and get involved in and benefit from. According to Dr. Holt, much of science's image problem comes down to the way we communicate. I should also note, actually, before we get started, that Dr. Holt's experience is very rooted in the American political and education system, so that's the framing he uses. Uh, But in our research for the report, we found that the challenges he describes aren't limited to America, although it's certainly a strong and growing concern here in the U.S. Let's listen in. Lewis Thomas the biologist, physician, and essayist once wrote a piece in the New York Times, uh, a delightful piece, and he said, we have to help people understand that science is the shrewdest maneuver for understanding how the world works. I love that phrase. It gave me a lot to think about. I spent a long time trying to figure out, well, what do we mean by science? And actually, it's a definition that a third grader could understand, I think. Science is a way of asking questions so that they can be answered empirically and verifiably. Now, the third grader won't know the words empirical or verifiable. But the third grader will understand that you can, as Yogi Berra said, see a lot by looking that you can actually frame your questions so that you can answer them with observation and evidence, empirically. And that you can then verify your conclusions, your observations, your analysis, if you're willing to communicate it openly, let others check your work. Uh, I think science is no more, no less than that. It's not how we usually present it. Science is indeed really special, a very special way of thinking. But for most people, it is spin-offs or cures or jobs. Uh, usually somebody else's job. In fact, there is often a certain amount of resentment 
of scientists asking for research funding because most people think, yeah, those are jobs for them, not for me. And rarely do they think of science as the shrewdest maneuver that is available to them for understanding how things work. Well, I, after thinking about this and dealing with this in one way or another for 16 years uh, in the House of Representatives, and uh, then after a short stint at the Institute for Advanced Study, I was pleased to land the job as the CEO of the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the world's largest general science membership organization. Some of you may think of us as a publisher, and we are, um, but our mission includes fostering communication, not just in a scholarly way among scientists, but fostering communication between scientists and the public. And also seeing that science is brought to bear on public issues in the best possible way, and that science is well integrated into our society. Those are real challenges, because today I don't think science is well integrated into our society. In a survey, if you ask, let's say, Americans, do they value science? Oh, by huge numbers, 90-ish percent. Oh, sure. Science is valuable. Science is great. I love science. You know, I couldn't live without my iPhone. But if you scratch the surface and ask, well, what's so special about science? Why would, why would you want to support it? Why would we want to spend taxpayer dollars for it? Why do we think that this should be required in school? Uh, they're generally at a loss. How it works, why it works, what's so special about it. Dr. Holt is describing the world we live in today. For many of us, our daily lives are made possible and easier by the results of science and engineering. Our smartphones, the car we drive, the water we get from the tap, the care we receive from our doctors. But Dr. Holt argues that we've become disconnected from the process, the scientific process, and focused only on the outcomes. Science and research is something that happens far away in a lab somewhere, maybe done by people in white coats. With few exceptions, it isn't necessarily feel like the shrewdest maneuver for understanding how the world works. But it hasn't always been this way. Why isn't science for everyone? I think it goes back to how we have communicated science. Think about it. For the last century, scientists who have been interested in communication, which is already a, mi a minority of scientists, even though communication is supposed to be one of the essential parts of the practice of science. Those who are interested in communication have focused on two things, simplicity and clarity. At least when they're talking with those outside of science. Policymakers, the general public, their sisters and cousins and aunts. But when they're talking with the public, imagine what the subtext is. 
it is very, very hard if your focus is on simplicity and clarity to avoid the problem that so many of us scientists have fallen into. Now let me see if I can explain this simply enough so that even you can understand it. That has been the scientist's message. Second, now I've spent a long time doing this, and you haven't. And here are my conclusions. Whether it's about climate change or evolution or, or, or vaccination or, uh, or, or, or water quality or public health, well, that not only creates a chasm between the speaker and the listener, but it tells them that science is not for them. Now, I don't know where this started, because deep in our culture, going back two centuries, we have really valued experimentation, empirical thinking, and evidence. If you look at the founding documents of this country and the words that went with them, the word experiment appears far more often than the word democracy. And for decades, even centuries afterwards, every farmer, every shopkeeper, every factory worker really prided themselves on thinking about how things work and how they could improve them. I don't know where we lost that. I suggest that maybe it happened in 1958, if you wanted to put a flag at one, at one year, because that was the year that we passed the National Defense Education Act. Some of you, some of us, were products of the National Defense Education Act when science curriculum was reformed all across America. The Congress down the street with the strong endorsement of the general public said, we will produce a generation of scientists and engineers the likes of which the world has never seen. And we did. But I think the effect was to develop a curriculum for future scientists and engineers that left behind about 80% of the population. How many of your kids, how many kids do you know who said, you know, this is kind of neat, I kind of like this. And, you know, uh, and somebody said to him, well, do you want to be a scientist? Well, I don't think so. And then you, they say, well, okay, so you don't need to take the physics course. You don't need to take the calculus course. You don't, you know, you're not going to be a scientist. Now, if you're going to be a scientist, here's your curriculum. And so not only have we developed a chasm between us and everyone else, we've also sent pretty clearly the message that science is not for you you'll get a lot of stares of disbelief from people if you tell them, yeah, you can think like a scientist. Every third grader does. Until we beat it out of them, they love to ask questions so they can be answered empirically and then subject their ideas to critique by others. It requires a certain humility uh, it requires, clearly, openness. But most of all, it requires a sense that we can learn things about the world. That opinion is not just as good 
as vetted evidence. When was the last time you heard an economic argument, whether it's around the water cooler at the office or on the floor of the House of Representatives, where someone said, now, hold on a minute. You're talking about economics here. Economics is an empirical science, so what is your evidence? Climate change, vaccination, these other things that I've mentioned in passing, but any number of things that you could list. We have essentially told people, you cannot think for yourself. So therefore, don't deal with thought. Just take your ideological plank that's handed to you. Several decades ago, actually more than I want to count, at one stage of my checkered career, I was a uh, Congressional Science Fellow, a AAAS, American Physical Society Fellow, spending a year on Capitol Hill with several dozen other mid-career scientists. And during the very good orientation program of the Congressional Fellows Program, we were sitting there, this would have been oh, probably 1982, um, and on the first day of the program, a, one of the speakers said, now you have to understand that facts are negotiable. Well, we um, squirmed nervously in our chairs, we PhD scientists, wondering what we had gotten ourselves into for a year. Uh, but it gave real food for thought. Um, I present that now. Uh, because this so-called post-truth world is just a recent manifestation of something that we've seen that we can trace back uh, some distance uh, in our culture, uh, in our government, uh, and indeed, I think, worldwide. But it's progressed over those several decades to the point now where I would say widespread in our society and our culture, there is no distinction between opinion, wishful thinking, and evidence. Dr. Holt pinpoints 1958 as the year in U.S. history when the educational system became more prescriptive about how science is taught. In our research for the To Know the World Science Literacy Report, we found a wide variety of approaches to science education around the world, some of which encourage much more of the third-grade thinking that Dr. Holt describes. Changing the way science is taught and socialized in schools could certainly help fight one of the root causes of distance between those who choose to pursue research as a career and those who don't. Dr. Holt argued that we all, especially publishers and others in the research community, have a responsibility to help close that gap. You know, science has such great power to produce clear thinking about the world, to alleviate human ills, that any communication that doesn't maximize the benefits is really ethically compromised. It's an ethical failure if we don't recognize that citizens deserve the opportunity to understand science and to make evidence-based decisions. The need for non-scientists 
to appreciate the essence of science, to use evidence-based thinking for themselves, is much greater than their need to understand the details, the terminology, the methodology of any particular scientific experiment or concept. And it applies, I would argue, to your research journals also, because scientists get in the habit of declaring what they've found and do nothing to strengthen the appreciation of the scientific process. Maybe they take it for granted that every reader of the article knows that. But the result is the science community has forgotten most of the time in our day-to-day -day work the essence of the scientific process. I think it really is a central problem facing society today. The abdication of almost everyone to think independently based on evidence. How citizens can make decisions about public issues based on evidence. How all citizens can feel empowered to use evidence even if they themselves are not scientists. So I would suggest that what we need is not more information, not more declarations, but more narrative. The story of evidence. Every article, at least every popular article, and I would argue every review article, and some research articles should be in the form of a narrative of evidence. Sure, there's a formula we all follow. Okay, what's the question, what's the procedure, what's so forth. But we have to think a little bit harder. What's the question we're trying to answer? What evidence would answer that question? No, not just what's the evidence of this paper, but what evidence would answer this question? How will we collect that evidence or our piece of that evidence? You see, the reader then gets the ownership of the evidence and the evidentiary procedure, and not just the declaration of the conclusions. So I think this is a, it's a call to journalists and publishers that we change the way we talk about science change the way we talk about evidence. Open the door more so that more people can feel ownership of the evidence and the process by which it has been obtained. So that they will have more respect for it, have more understanding of the uncertainty in it, and won't condemn it or dismiss it because there is some uncertainty as they do now, for example, with climate change. Well, you know, these models are imperfect. Well, you see, they don't know what they're talking about. So this is a challenge, and it's a call, uh, that we uh, think about words like discovery and invention and innovation and mystery and hope and evidence and let everyone know that ev evidence belongs to everyone. Dr. Holt is 
definitely not the only one arguing for a change in the way that science is communicated. There's growing discussion within the research community about what responsibility we have to help wider audiences understand and engage with research, and there are lots of ideas about how it can be done. Narrative, the use of story and putting research into context for people, which makes it relevant to their lives, is a powerful one. Many societies and journals are starting to experiment with new formats, which translate traditional research articles into more digestible and accessible information for people outside the field, whether it's a colleague in an adjacent discipline, a journalist, or their cousin. It's a really exciting time for research, as more people are arguing, just as Rush Holt does, that science is for everyone. Thanks again for joining our conversation, and I hope you'll tune in again next month. Until then, I'm Anna Ayler. Our editorial advisory group includes Alexa Dugan, David Nicholson, Sarah Fibbs, Deb Wyatt, and Nielsen Turner. Our theme music for this episode was provided by Jason Shaw and edited by Dennis Velasco. You can listen to other episodes and learn when new episodes are released by subscribing to the Wiley Society podcast in iTunes. You can also sign up for our mailing list to learn more about what's happening at Wiley and other news and trends in research publishing by going to exchanges.wiley.com societies.